Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, the podcast from the research team at Knight Frank. I'm your host, Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst. Can't quite believe it, but it's our second series now. So after 33 episodes of Series 1, we'll now be bringing you a slightly different format in light of the fact that many of us around the world are emerging from lockdown and we clearly have a bit less time on our hands. Many of us are now commuting into offices. So each Monday, we'll be delivering you a very tightly packed edition. And this will be featuring guest speakers as normal, but also you'll be hearing from more of us around the business at Night Frank. So to kick off, we'll be looking at our latest UK house price forecasts. We'll have our UK head of residential research, Tom Bill, on the podcast to explain the rationale behind these. We'll also discuss how lenders are dealing with the rise in demand for mortgages and payment holidays and why tech giants are continuing to expand in New York. Last month, house prices rose at the fastest monthly rate in more than 16 years, according to Nationwide. But what will happen next? Knight Frank forecasts prime central London house prices will fall 3% this year, but rise 4% next year, while UK house prices will rise 2% in 2020 and 1% next year. I'm joined now by Tom Bill, Knight Frank's UK Head of Residential Research, to discuss what's driving the market. Tom, what can you tell us about what's changed between this forecast and the numbers that Knight Frank ran last time and why have they improved? I suppose the biggest change between this time and last time round is we now have a market that's open and functioning. We've also had a stamp duty announcement, which happened in July. I think overall, I suppose it's fair to say that what's happened since the market reopened in May has taken most people by surprise. I think the extent to which the market has bounced back, the extent that demand and supply and transaction activity is starting to pick up has really probably taken most people by surprise. And it's a really marked difference between if you think back to sort of the middle of April and May with the market shut, people didn't really know what was going to happen next and were forecasting all sorts of things for the market. And so we've had some time now to assess how the market is performing since reopening. And for now, the market is performing very strongly. And I guess the key thing that people will be watching is really how long all of this will last. What's your sense on that? Do you think we're in a bubble at the moment? Sure. I mean, I think I think a bubble is probably not the best description. A bubble is a situation where prices become detached from the underlying fundamentals, and that's not what's happening at the moment. I think what you're seeing is a period of very strong activity. I mean, you have demand that was pent up during lockdown. And beyond that, I think over the last five or six years, you've had the market's been a little bit subdued because of all the Brexit uncertainty, because of the tight lending environment, and just the changeable tax landscape. So I think all of that really has just kind of come into play now. And what you have is a market that is strong, as I say, from a supply and a demand point of view. And so it feels for now like it is something that's fairly sustainable. This isn't just a demand-led recovery. And I suppose what we now will be watching closely is how long this can go on for. And what's interesting about the forecast is that they show that prime central land will underperform, but prime regional prices remain more stable. So just given that, I mean, what makes you so sure that prime London will recover in 2021 and beyond? I think what enables us to sort of believe that is the recent history of the market. Again, if you think back to before the pandemic, you had pretty subdued conditions in the prime London market for a period of five or six years. The very central London areas were the areas where prices have corrected by the most across the country. And so I think 
that needs to be borne in mind when you're thinking about what's going to happen next in, say, markets like prime central London. I think it's overdue a run in terms of house prices. And so I think while at the moment things remain pretty static in prime central London, people aren't able to, international buyers aren't able to jump on planes quite as easily as they once were. I think there is the potential for the market for prices to strengthen because of the correction that's taken place. Now, you've got a stamp duty surcharge coming in next April, a 2% surcharge for overseas buyers. That, I'm sure, will have an impact. You might see demand get kind of squeezed and funneled down towards the end of the year as people kind of, it comes onto their radar a little bit more. But beyond that, once that's sort of processed, I think the longer term picture is that we're overdue for a bit of house price inflation in prime central London. And just to finish, Tom, what's it been like having to forecast against this backdrop of a global pandemic compared to your previous experience over other years? Uh, yeah, not not easy, uh, particularly in the short term. I think there's a lot of information that's coming at you. Some of it's real time, some of it is historic, some of it just is anecdotal. And I think it's a case, really, I think, of putting all of that together and trying to process what a fairly unprecedented situation means for the housing market by looking at the fundamentals by looking at sort of past downturns and trying to analyze what's different between now and 2008 and what's the same and what that tells you about how the market's likely to perform and so I suppose it's been the case of trying not to get too caught up with some of the prophecies that we've heard around what was going to happen to the housing market in the depths of the pandemic and trying to just think, I suppose, more widely about how the market had been performing when the pandemic struck, what those underlying fundamentals are. And, that, and for that reason, we think that there won't, it's not like there's going to be very strong house price inflation, I don't think, over the next few years. But I think a more modest rate of growth is something that's pretty feasible. And I think that's what we're likely to see. heard from Tom on the drivers of the UK residential market, but how are lenders coping with all this pent-up demand? Fresh Bank of England data shows 66% rise in mortgage approvals for house purchases in July compared to June. Knight Frank finance partner Hina Budia and consultant to the firm Patrick Gower are here to explain more. Patrick, what does the latest Bank of England data tell us? Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. Bank of England released its latest mortgage approvals data on Wednesday, and actually approvals in July for house purchase almost doubled actually so we're now about 10 percent below sort of february's very strong pre-pandemic level of house purchasing and, and we're largely in line with the five-year average now we've seen a lot of activity and sales of houses worth between seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds and a million but also crucially quite a resurgent in first-time buyers it does really seem like this stamp duty cut is working and at least offsetting for first-time buyers this requirement for larger deposits the recovery is being led by purchasers remortgaging is still about 30 percent below pre-pandemic levels and actually just lastly the bank of england data is showing that the average price of fixed rate deals is now starting to edge up a little bit but particularly these ltvs at about 85 percent and even more so at 90 percent loan to value so so it looks like average fixed rate mortgages are starting to creep up now Thanks, Patrick. And Hina, from your perspective, I mean, clearly mortgage lending is on the rise, but what can you tell us sort of on the ground in terms of how the banks are coping and whether you think the holiday has been successful or not? Sure. So I think obviously the market from our perspective is busier than we were all expecting. And I've said it in some of my earlier publications that I think 
interest rates still being at all-time lows we still consider them to be all-time lows five-year fixed pricing being really still quite low has kept the market quite buoyant what is however happening is that the lenders are still extremely busy still trying to catch up with the number of applications that they had during the lockdown period working on skeleton staff working on lower number of people to actually look at the applications has just meant that they've had to really streamline where they are wanting to lend. And obviously, at the higher loan to values, ultimately, if they are getting lots of applications in at the lower end, the easiest part to close or the easiest tap to turn off would be the higher loan to value. So it's still a market where we are busy, where our interest rates are low, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it is very, very difficult for different areas of the market, higher loan to values, self-employed, people on bonuses, etc. And going to the payment holidays, the number of sheer number of applications that the banks have had for requests of payment holidays has meant that that has kept them extremely, extremely busy. We were all anticipating that the payment holiday would be a short-term relief in the market. Obviously, that was extended best possible talks for a smaller extension again. But this really isn't helping the banks with keeping them busy, which is ultimately obviously stopping them doing the lending that we would like to see them doing. And what about the the talk of banks sort of under pressure, I guess, to offer a range of tailored repayment options after the holiday ends? I've seen the UK's financial watchdog telling banks to do this. I mean, do you think that that's a realistic prospect at this point? I just think if you're at capacity, then yes, if a bank is at capacity and it has sufficient staff to be able to deal with that request, then yeah, absolutely, it totally makes sense. And that's exactly what they should be doing, looking at an individual circumstance rather than a blanket approach on giving payment holidays. The question is for individual banks, do they have the ability at the moment to be able to do that? Only they can answer. It's difficult for us as brokers to be able to comment on whether they've got sufficient capacity to be able to do it but from a finance perspective it completely makes sense you know just to protect clients as well rather than just accepting a payment holiday and having interest accrue on your mortgage and your mortgage ultimately going up and taking a longer time to pay off makes sense for it to be individually assessed but whether they've got the time and the capacity to be able to do it is another question you know the context of this now is that a few months ago, UK Finance said one in every six mortgages in the UK are subject to a payment holiday now. So banks, as we say, that are already stretched, dealing with that level of admin, and we're unsure quite how much that's increased since, it just gives you an idea of the scope of what the lenders are having to deal with. And in terms of other news that's caught your attention, Hina, and we saw that Nationwide, for instance, had capped gift deposits, so they're not accepting more than a 25% deposit from family members. What were your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a sensible move? Is that just a capacity issue? Yeah, I would say it's a capacity issue. Look, ultimately, if a bank is, they're one of the only lenders out there that are still happy to do the higher loan to value lending. And they're being quite clever about it. I guess what they're saying is that if we're going to take on and we are going to agree loans at the higher loan to values for clients, we want to cherry pick clients that are disciplined and have managed to use their own income in order to be able to save their deposits. Because, you know, let's face it, if your parents are in a position to be able to support you, you know, and there are many in London, especially where they can, if they are injecting all of the capital, is the bank taking on the right client by lending to a client that hasn't actually saved anything from their own savings? So 
you know, it's probably a way of very smartly just streamlining the caliber of clients that they want to take on. They're not saying we were, it has to be all from your own savings, which is understandable because property prices are still quite high in London and clients do have to save for quite a long time in order to get a deposit, but they're limiting it and saying, you know, we're happy to take on part gifted deposit, but you've got to demonstrate that you actually, as a client, have managed to raise most of the funds yourself. So I think it's a clever move. It, it is restrictive, but that's just their way of streamlining and, like I say, making sure that they get the best of the client profile that they want to work with. Let's go to New York now to hear from Douglas Larson, Executive Vice President at our New York-based affiliate, New York Knight Frank, on how the city's office market is performing. It's Labor Day in the US today, and many companies there are now preparing for more employees to return to offices with flexibility to work at home. Given how quiet the city's offices have been over the past few months, what are the implications for commercial real estate? So, Doug, what would be your 60-second summary of what's going on in, in the New York office market? How can you describe what's happening in a minute? So it's been interesting to say the least. New York and US in general has been on pause, both in leasing and investment sales side. Investment sales are down about 80% from where they were last year due to limitations on travel and proper due diligence. We've seen a large demand for investments in our gateway cities, such as New York and Boston. And there are a handful of sales that have occurred and they're showing very strong numbers. On the leasing side, we've seen the lowest leasing volume on record with just a little over 11 million square feet in New York for mid-year. And this compares to about 25 million square feet that we saw last year. Face rents are holding and net effective rents are down about 8 to 12% due to higher concessions. The sentiment in the market has shifted in the last few months as we're starting to see some expansions on leasing with technology tenants such as Facebook and Google taking significant blocks of space. On that sentiment point, how are you seeing sentiment impacting inbound investment currently? Who, who is investing in the market at the moment? So we've seen a tremendous amount of demand of core investors and syndicators from Asia, Singapore, Korea, South America, and Germany. And we're seeing quite a bit of pent-up demand. There's a flight to quality by investors who are seeking properties with high cash flow and lease term. The strongest investments have been obviously in the office market and life science, as well as industrial distribution. And right now we're seeing returns that have not changed from the pre-COVID levels. And why do you think that is? Because I mean, I think we see a lot of reports in the press, you know, around New York being like a ghost town, for example, and people are doubting whether we'll see a return to what we thought of as normal office life. Do you think that that's just unfounded or do you think that there's quite a lot of opportunistic investment going on? I think obviously, like I said, it's a flight to quality, but, you know, it has to do with the amount of demand that we're seeing. And it's been pretty significant. I mean, the New York, the gateway cities in the U.S. in particular, have been considered to be internationally one of the safest places to invest. And I think we're still seeing that. It's just hard to get capital in here. Over the last three years, we've seen, you know, records amount of capital being raised, nearly $50 billion ready to deploy. It's just very, very hard to find investments right now. 
really everything has been pulled off the market for the most part. And the sales that we have seen have been either properties that have gone into COVID and have closed and the better assets, but it's clearly the amount of demand that we're seeing in the market for these safe investments. And do you envisage a hybrid return to work, but sort of a balance of working from home and working in the office? I think you mentioned before we had this conversation that roughly 5 to 10% of employees might be back in the office where you're working. But do you see that number going up over the next few months? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is a pretty much a sentiment that it's not as efficient to work at home. I think there's two things going on. We're seeing uh, de-densification, which is the requirement of more space per employee as employees are being spread out into the space. So we're also seeing increased demand for additional space. So I guess in the market, we expect, you know, after our Labor Day or end of summer, that somewhere between 15 to 25 percent of our employees may come back to work and on a staggered basis. And hopefully, you know, we could hit 50 to 75% by year end. And just to close, what would you say, other than clearly the pandemic, what would you say is the biggest threat to your market currently? The number one risk right now is how we will be coming back. And this kind of overlaps into the prior question. But when we do come back, it's going to be interesting to see how much subly space is going to be put on the market. I think that's our number one risk right now. Currently, we have about 12 million square feet of sublease space in New York and about a 460 million square foot market. If companies do not come back and we see, you know, sublease space increasing to 15 to 18 million square feet, we could see net effective rents continue to drop in the 16 to 18% range or more. So it all depends on how we're coming back. One thing that we're also looking at is our public transportation, because New York is very driven by that, and getting people comfortable to take subways. So, for example, our ridership was 5.4 million people per day, and it's dropped to 400,000 at the height of the pandemic. Now it's back to about 1.2 million riders each day at the end of the month. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm